The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of Battlefield Pennsylvania. Today we're filming on location at Point State Park in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a site that for the last 250 years has seen five separate wars, garrisoned hundreds of soldiers, and flown the flags of three empires. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today I'm joined by Alan Gutchess, the director of the Fort Pitt Museum, a member of the Senator John Hines History Center. Alan, thank you for being here. That's great to join you here, Brady. Whenever we think about history, whenever we think about major events, one of the things we often discredit uh, is the geography of the region itself. Talk about the natural features of Western Pennsylvania and why Europe's two largest empires were so anxious to control it. Uh, Western Pennsylvania uh, was a tremendous area of natural resources, so that was one of the major things that both powers were after. Um, part of that natural resources involved the fur trade, so hundreds of thousands of beer hides were coming out of the Ohio country every year. Uh, there also were the rivers, which would take you much farther to the west, uh, as well as just the land itself and the timber. So for both powers, uh, being able to control this uh, was really a great prize. One of the ways I like to describe colonial America uh, is, is really an untamed land. And in many ways, it had its own built-in superhighways. Uh, how did the empires of Europe envision using these rivers for expansion? Well, the, the point is really here ideally situated so that the, the rivers themselves give you access down the Ohio River all the way to New Orleans. Uh, the Allegheny River flows down from uh, the northeast and so you have access up into French Canada and the Monongahela River, its headwaters take you within 10 miles of the headwaters of the Potomac. So you also have access uh, to essentially British North America through that direction. So by Again, having this, this point of land, being able to control it, and especially to control the rivers, gave you tremendous power. Whenever the Europeans planned their grand design for the region, uh, they often didn't enough take into account the people who were already here. The area in which we're filming now, known as the Ohio country, was a land of many peoples. Some have even called it a country of refugees. Who were these people, and how did they come to this region? So, kind of a quick prehistory, there, there were various native cultures that had occupied the Ohio country really from this point on farther west. Uh, but in the years preceding the, the 18th century, between the beaver wars, between wars between the natives themselves for control of the fur trade, and because of introduced European diseases, which often made it into the, the back country long before Europeans themselves had ever got this far, 
had largely depopulated the country here. So slowly in the beginning of the 18th century, uh, Native folks started coming back in. We see the Delaware people who were primarily from more of Eastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey and New York who had entered into this area. Shawnees who traditionally live farther to the south. And also because the Ohio country sits on the edge of the Iroquois Empire, the two westernmost Iroquois tribes, the Seneca and the Cayuga also kind of were filtering into the Ohio country. And so when the English and the, and the French were coming out here, the native people they were encountering were also kind of newcomers as well. So it's a little bit different than the situations to the east. We often have this idea that Europeans arrive in this long-standing Indian world. Really, we know that politically it's very tumultuous. It's always changing. And when European powers introduce themselves, uh, they radically change things as well. In 1753, uh, a young 21-year-old Virginia militia captain named George Washington stood on this very site, and he believed it was an ideal location for a fort. From what George Washington saw 250 years ago, uh, physically, how has this location changed today? There's been a lot of changes. Uh, the point itself has physically changed in the sense that over time, as it was industrialized, uh, the point itself has been raised higher. The rivers are now deeper, but not as wide as they once were. And so I don't know that George Washington would have instantly recognized uh, Point State Park as the location that he had seen in 1753. When we go to the fort today, visitors who aren't familiar with the history are going to see two very clearly defined outlines. Uh, a smaller fortification, which we'll talk about Fort Duquesne, and of course the much larger Fort Pitt. But those weren't the first two forts on site. Talk about the very first fort built here and the importance of it for both the Europeans and the natives involved. So the, the first attempt to, to actually build a fort here uh, took place at the behest of the Ohio Company. So it's kind of a joint venture uh, supported by the British government, supported by the government of Virginia, but kind of a private enterprise involved in the fur trade. And so uh, Governor Didwinty of Virginia had authorized the building of a small, uh, essentially a, what would amount to a little more than a stockaded trading post. Uh, the construction of it had begun. Uh, I don't think originally they even intended to stockade it, but they realized that for defensive purposes they should put up pickets around it. Uh, but the fort, as it was called, Trent's Fort, I think they intended to name it Fort Prince George. Uh, but it was really a, a very small attempt, unfortunately, before they ever even really had finished it, uh, the French uh, kind of arrived in mass with some of their Indian allies, reminded them that from the French point of view, this was New France, not England, and uh, recommended they leave. And uh, they did. So they abandoned the, the post to the French. Now, you, you mentioned early on this was much less a fort, much more effectively a trading post. The tr uh, trade in the Indian world is a major part of their life. It's a major part of Europe's interactions in this area. What did trade mean to the average Indian community? Well, native folks had become largely dependent on European goods already at contact. Uh, European goods had even altered everything to do with their lifestyle. Um, they became dependent on European firearms for hunting. They became dependent on even things as simple as uh, metal hatchets and cooking utensils. And so any time that the English could come into what essentially was French territory and set up trade with the natives, it worked politically to kind of pry those natives free uh, from their affection to the French and brought them over to the side of the English. So trade itself was a political tactic in many ways. Oh, absolutely. 
and it's political and it's military, uh, so that if you can win the natives' affections, if they rely on you as their primary trading partner, they're less likely to engage you in warfare as well. So trade was used as a, as a tactic uh, militarily. Now between 1753 and 1754, obviously both Britain and France understand the, the situation you just described. The French make a massive investment in the Ohio country. Uh, what were their, in theory, strategic gains and how would that help them control what they hope would be the entire continent? Sure, so if you kind of back up and look at the big perspective, France, in its attempts to, to have colonies in the Americas, uh, they were centered in Canada, which most people are aware of, uh, but they also had established colonies in what is the Illinois country, as well as down in Louisiana. So essentially the French have kind of created a very loose net that they've thrown over a, a large part of the frontier, uh, but it is kind of very loose. So they, they have these kind of outposts and settlements, uh, but they don't really control the country in between. Uh, the English kind of took advantage of that to some degree. The English are primarily settled on the East Coast, but they sent traders to these Indian villages and established themselves. So in theory, uh, the French viewed this territory as being theirs, but they hadn't actually done much to occupy the middle part of it. So beginning about that time, they decided that they would actually start that occupation. In 1749, Saileron came through uh, and kind of made a loop through the Ohio country and back up into the Great Lakes. Uh, he buried lead plates and he put up metal signs that basically declared this region to be New France. And then starting in the early 1750s, they actually physically started to come in and build a series of forts uh, stretching down from Lake Erie down to the point itself. I'd like to talk about those forts uh, for a moment, mm -hmm. but when you describe the world you just, you just did, we have the heart of New France uh, being in the uh, St. Lawrence River Valley. You have an outpost of sorts in the Great Lakes. You have the Illinois and of course, New Orleans, Louisiana, that region. The area in the middle, of course, is right where we sit. So controlling this location is vital to connecting the entire empire that really stretched a distance from what could be comparable to Paris to Moscow. Out of uh, that thought, three forts will be built in 1753 and 1754 before they reach here. Uh, was this always the goal? Yes, I think that ultimately they always wanted to have this small string of forts. And part of the reason I think they wanted to build a string of them from Lake Erie was so that they could supply and reinforce each other. So that if any one fort was to come under attack, they could send for help from the others. Uh, Duquesne, um, named after the, the Governor General of, of Canada at the time, uh, was going to be the kind of end post of that. Uh, there was some discussion about exactly even where to build it. There was some thought of building it down the Ohio River a short distance where there was a pre-existing kind of native community and trading post called Logstown. Uh, I think like George Washington, they kind of viewed this property though uh, as being the more ideal, mostly because it physically would allow you to control the three rivers. Um, if you look at a drawing of the point from the air, uh, it appears to be this kind of ideal location. When they actually got here on the ground, both the French and the English would eventually realize there were gonna be some potential weaknesses to it. One of the primary ones is that it's not tremendously above the level of the rivers. And uh, this river valley floods, and so that was always gonna be an issue. And the other problem for a fort at the Forks is also gonna be the, uh, the large hillside uh, sitting behind us, what we call Mount Washington today 
which everyone realized that if your enemy was able to bring any heavy artillery up to the top of that mountain, that any fort down at the Forks of the Ohio would always be vulnerable to attack from there. Though, aside from the, the glaring problems you just mentioned, the French never hesitate to move forward. Uh, and they build what many would consider to be a very modest fort in 1754 on location. Could you describe uh, physically what Fort, fort Duquesne would have looked like uh, and why they never frayed uh, from that idea of building it despite all of the problems you've already mentioned? Yeah, I think they realized that if they were going to control the fur trade, if they were going to have any real hard influence on their native partners, they had to have a, an actual physical presence out here. Um, Duquesne itself was an extremely small fort. Uh, I think it was only about 120 feet across. It was a four-bastion fort, uh, and even those bastions, most of them had houses built on them. Uh, the garrison there at, at, at Duquesne uh, really was around 200 men, 250 men usually, sometimes up to double that. But there wasn't even enough room within Duquesne to actually billet all of those men. So almost immediately, some of the French soldiers were staying in tents and even around this very tiny Fort Duquesne, which was a wooden fort, um, kind of a small uh, village, if you will, rose up. At least one of the soldiers stationed here described living in a cabin off-site. Um, so Duquesne was never really kind of this powerhouse. It didn't mount very much artillery. Uh, it wasn't a very imposing fort, even the French commanders kind of acknowledged that they knew they were extremely vulnerable, but as a symbol of the French being here, actually representing themselves in the Ohio country, it was extremely important. Um, it became a source of supply, so uh, when Sailoron had come through just five years earlier, most of the Indians he encountered were actually fairly hostile to the French. They liked having those English traders, uh, but by the time Fort Duquesne is built, the natives in the region have softened to the French. It allows them a source of supply, so if they want to attack the English, they can get their gunpowder, they can get lead, they can get arms here. And so Duquesne uh, really became, you know, again, a symbol uh, even stronger than its actual defenses were. One of the things I always stress about empire is that in many ways you're spreading your worldview to places where it didn't exist before. Fort Duquesne was very minor. Uh, but if you look at how the French were spreading into the area, you'll see they make a very specific claim uh, that the Catholic Church had a presence as early as 1754 in this region. Now, it seems like bringing an entity like the church into the region would be uh, lower on the, on the list of priorities to basic survival, but it was really important for them. How important was their religion for both the French and the English in terms of their view of competition, especially in this region in 1754? In many ways, Catholicism gave uh, the French a certain advantage over the English. The, the English uh, efforts in North America and even in Western Pennsylvania uh, were very diverse ethnically, religiously, so that soldiers, say, stationed at Fort Pitt later on came from Scotland and Ireland uh, and England and from the continent, from Germany, um, and so you have this very diverse population linguistically, of a very diverse population with ethnicity and, and their religious backgrounds, where the Catholic Church was a unifying force for the French efforts. And so, yeah, the French army usually did travel with priests. They traveled with this kind of religious extension of themselves, uh, and that was no different at, at Fort Duquesne. So they had a priest here, they had clergy, um, the, the clergy even brought their own Indian helpers who were converts from Canada. And so we really have a situation that's 
very different than the, the way that the English uh, operated, especially on the frontier. Were the native peoples receptive to this missionary activity or was it simply another affront to another power moving in and affecting their way of life? I think the success of Catholicism among the natives here was not as dramatic. Uh, they had a far greater success were they in their holdings in Canada. Uh, so the Abenakis that came as allies with some of the French here to Fort Duquesne were converted already. Uh, but it was a little bit different. Uh, I think most of the Delaware and Shawnee people and Mingo people that were here, um, I don't think very many of them kind of embrace Catholicism as much as they embrace the French Empire. Whenever we think of New France as an empire, it's very important to think of it as a connected system. You begin with the heart of it uh, in Canada, through the Great Lakes, through a series of rivers, it connects it all together. Theoretically, if you're here stationed, garrison at Fort Duquesne, uh, help is only uh, a few clicks away up the river. But when you were here, if you're the average French soldier, do you feel like you're connected to the rest of your national kin? I think they did. And, and the, the French army that was here was comprised both of regulars, um, French Marine from, from France itself, as well as a lot of Canadian militia. And again, I think the, the shared language and that shared culture uh, was much more unifying for the French soldiers here than for English soldiers here later at Fort Pitt. But isolation was a critical part of being stationed. Here. Absolutely. And, um, you know, the other issue that Fort Duquesne faced, they could get resupplied to some degree and draw in extra men uh, from these more adjacent forts. But feeding the garrison here was always going to be an issue. Um, there were efforts made early on at planting cornfields, and certainly by the end of Fort Duquesne, they had made real efforts and real success at kind of making themselves a self-sustaining community here, uh, where earlier on they were completely dependent, especially on food supplies. Uh, at one point, even food supplies were being brought in from the Illinois country to keep the, the troops fed. So th there is a certain degree of isolation which just comes from being the most remote fort in your region. One of the real motivating factors of empire, in my opinion, is competition. For 600 years, the English and the French have been competing around the world. They're competing here as well. Uh, you've mentioned commercial interest in the Ohio country, imperial interest, military interest. When the English saw Fort Duquesne, what did they see? Well, I think they saw a major obstacle to their future. Uh, I think the English had always been aware that the future of their North American holdings were going to be in some kind of westward expansion. And obviously having this fort representing uh, New France sitting right in the middle of this dream was going to be an issue. Uh, the colony of Virginia in particular, uh, I think, viewed the western regions as its expansion zone. And I think very clearly believed that it was actually part of the colony of Virginia. Uh, and so it's, it's as long as Duquesne, as long as these French forts are here, it's always going to be an obstacle to the future dreams of, of expansion to the West. Now, in many ways, again, viewing this from London, viewing this from, from Versailles, from in France itself, there's always a looming threat of war between the two in some distant place. Uh, what was the British strategy overall for recapturing this location? And was it part of the larger war to come? Are we right in including it in the Seven Years' War? Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, Again, the, the, the long-term dream was going to be able to hold and expand into the Ohio country. Uh, when they lost uh, the point to the French, almost immediately the discussions began, not only of coming in to remove the French, 
uh, but in even part of Braddock's baggage train was found a map showing essentially what would be Fort Pitt that they had already planned long before it was actually constructed. So I think England's long-term plan was not just to boot the French out, but to come back and establish themselves in such strength that the French would never be an issue again out here. Now you mentioned a name, uh, General Edward Braddock. When he selected, uh, first, what is he selected for? Second, why is he selected? And third, how did the English generally view the outcome of that if they, uh, before it happened? Did they think it would be effective? Yeah, I think uh, Braddock was chosen and kind of put in command of the forces in North America. Uh, clearly, he and his superiors made it a, a priority to come in and retake the point. Um, his efforts unfortunately failed. Uh, you know, it was a major undertaking. It was no simple thing to move an English army to the Forks of the Ohio. Uh, they had to actually build the road that they would travel on at the same time. So Braddock's forces left from uh, Cumberland, Maryland, began cutting this road and making a major uh, effort at retaking the point and establishing kind of British dominance here. Um, they did pretty good getting fairly close to here, uh, but the problem was that the French and their Indian allies had some advance warning they were coming and just a few miles down the river here um, on the Monongahela, they, they met their defeat, uh, which again kind of uh, stopped that British effort temporarily. Now Braddock is one of the highest ranking officials in the entire British military worldwide. Uh, the, the British were clearly making a statement selecting him for that, correct? Yes, yeah. And by sending him to lead the expedition, you know, when you put your top man in charge and send him into this kind of situation, you're sending a message to everybody about what your intentions are. When he's defeated and killed, uh, is there a larger English reaction around the world or just here in North America? No, I think everybody was shocked. Um, you know, I don't think anybody ever anticipates uh, defeat for their own army. And so I think it had major repercussions. Um, and really the British war effort then during the French and Indian War uh, never really got off the ground uh, initially, so it took a little while before there was any real traction. Well, Alan, now that we've talked about the physical features of the point, uh, let's move inside the Fort Pitt Museum, see what you're working on there, and continue our look at the military development of the Forks of the Ohio. All right. We're on the second floor of the Fort Pitt Museum discussing the French efforts to fortify the Forks of the Ohio and the British efforts to defeat them. Alan, we've talked about the English attempt to capture Fort Duquesne uh, and the English reaction. How did the French perceive Braddock's defeat? Well, with uh, Braddock uh, being defeated, the French obviously saw this as a tremendous victory. I think it buoyed their efforts uh, probably around the world. Uh, certainly, uh, one of its most immediate effects was on their native allies to be able to demonstrate that they could defeat uh, the English on that kind of a level. Uh, I think it immediately had effects for Fort Duquesne um, in that they began efforts, uh, you know, I think to kind of make sure that they were going to stay uh, at the point. We've talked about Fort Duquesne being a very modest fort up until 1755. After Braddock is defeated, seemingly Britain's great response to the fort. Fort Duquesne actually expands. Yes, um, so by 1757, I think the French had realized that it really was inadequate uh, to house the, the number of men and, and all of their native allies. Uh, and so we know by 1757, they'd actually build a much larger rectangular stockade adjacent to the original Fort Duquesne, which stretched along the Allegheny side of the river. 
Uh, it housed more uh, French soldiers as well as uh, natives who had joined along with them. And really in those years after Braddock's defeat, Duquesne really turned into quite a large community, not just the fort itself, but surrounding uh, fields. They were starting to actually grow enough of their own food to support the garrison and their allies. Uh, and so Duquesne really kind of blossomed after that and expanded quite rapidly. Were, were we just talking about French soldiers? Were there families with them at this point? Now, there was a, a civilian population there as well. Um, and so uh, you have the, the French and as well as um, the natives who were there with wives and children. Uh, one of the French soldiers stationed at the fort even describes how one of the English captives taken on a frontier raid was brought back to Duquesne and actually married then one of the French soldiers. Uh, and kind of along with our earlier discussion, the, the only limitation placed by the commandant was that she had to convert to Catholicism for that to take place. Now, we see Fort Duquesne expand in 1756 and 1757. All around the world, now we see the beginning of what we call the Seven Years' War. In North America, the French and Indian War. But the French feel very good about themselves from 56 to 1757. The English, not so much. They call it the Years of Defeat. If you are British at this time, uh, how do you feel about your effort in the war? And most importantly, uh, do you really feel like this war is a major event in the making? Yeah, and I think the, it was certainly demoralizing for the English war efforts uh, because they had not had tremendous uh, success. I think the response to that on the British side was when uh, Pitt got involved, William Pitt. Uh, they developed more of a precise strategy of how to take uh, more of North America back. Uh, and you start to see a much more um, uh, consolidated war effort take place. Did the English have a sense at the beginning of the Seven Years' War that if they lost, North America would likely be lost as well? I think there was some sense of that. Um, you know, the prior conflicts between uh, France and England and North America, King George's War and the War of Jenkins' Ear and some of these other conflicts, I don't think they saw on that kind of global scale. But I think they realized that this conflict was going to have larger ramifications one way or the other. Winston Churchill very famously describes the Seven Years' War as history's first world war. And he's a guy who knows a thing or two about world wars. Right. Uh, when you look at the way the British are losing uh, in the Caribbean, in North America, in Europe in 1756 when the war officially begins, in 1757, uh, you see a very desperate time. When William Pitt comes in, you mentioned him already, what specifically, when he takes over, uh, does he change? Well, he changes a lot of just the way that the war was going to be fought um, in the way that he organized the armies uh, and specifically for the history of the point uh, he makes kind of retaking the Ohio country as one of the priorities and so that combined with some of their other uh, efforts uh, another effort then to, to take Quebec uh, which was done in 59 so it really kind of changed the complexion of the war. William Pitt devises a radical new strategy, as you've, as you've discussed. Uh, and a lot of tenets go into place. One of the most important ones is that British regular soldiers are employed more commonly in North America. Uh, that includes officers. The Scotsman, General John Forbes, is selected very especially for the job of capturing the Ohio country. What is his mission? Uh, basically, to to build a road, um, much as Braddock had attempted to uh, build a road all the way to the point, uh, Forbes is given pretty much the same, uh, the same task. Uh, he's going to build a road essentially from Carlisle uh, to 
not only bring his forces out, but he takes a little bit different tactic than Braddock in that he also then builds a series of forts along the way along that road so that his forces won't be isolated out on the frontier. They'll actually have support uh, and resupply stations all the way. So in many ways, uh, Braddock's effort failed uh, because he was carving a path through the wilderness but not reinforcing what he had already gained. Uh, Forbes will move slowly, building fortifications along the way. What were those forts that he built? Uh, built a whole series of them. Um, along Forbes Road, you have uh, Fort Bedford that came about as a result of that, Fort Ligonier, two of the most important ones in our area. And he was establishing essentially an open line for reinforcement and supply as he got closer uh, to the forks of the Ohio. Whenever John Forbes ultimately captures the site, it's a little less uh, anticlimactic than a lot of people like to think. Uh, but one of the things that happens before is he sends out a reconnaissance mission to scout out Fort Duquesne to see what their strength is uh, with very specific orders that that commander doesn't follow. Can you tell us about James Grant? Yeah, so James Grant was uh, an officer of the 77th, uh, one of these uh, battalions that had been raised in Scotland. Uh, he was given uh, the task of coming out uh, to reconnoiter the area. Uh, he had not only his own Scottish troops, but also some Virginia militia troops uh, under Andrew Lewis, who were also part of his command. And the idea uh, was to kind of test and see what all was going on at Duquesne. Uh, he was kind of told ahead of time that he was not to actually engage the enemy. Uh, and also, they were under the impression that there was a fairly large garrison at Duquesne. As his men approached, they began to believe that there were actually only a couple hundred French and not that many native allies along. And so uh, kind of breaking with his orders, uh, he devised a bit of a plan to engage the enemy. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they, they essentially sent a, a, a smaller group uh, up to uh, kind of draw the French out of the fort to attack them. Um, but the French didn't go along with his plan. They had one of their own, and so they instead went after the Virginian troops. And so in the process, uh, uh, Grant and his forces were defeated. Grant himself was taken uh, captive. Uh, Andrew Lewis, the uh, Virginia militia captain, was taken as well. And so it was really a, quite a disaster um, you know, for, for the effort at that time. One of the things you, you've mentioned, which I think is really important we hit on in this series, uh, is how you collect intelligence in the 18th century. The British send an entire force forward to see exactly what's at Fort Duquesne. The French seem to know what's going on all along, uh, obviously not to their own doing. Uh, could you describe how you gathered intelligence for both sides? Sure. Um, both sides occasionally would send uh, their own troops. I think both sides relied largely on native intelligence services. So throughout the French and Indian War, both the French and the English routinely in, employed their own native allies as spies. Uh, so most of what England knows about Fort Duquesne uh, comes from Indians who basically are out here, in many cases trading and dealing with the French and then turning right around and giving descriptions of what was up. Um, one of the men captured at Fort Necessity, uh, a man named Stobo, was a prisoner at Fort Duquesne and actually made a measured drawing of the fort uh, with all sorts of details about the garrison and actually had an Indian smuggle that back to the English. Um, unfortunately, the English turned right around and published that map in a newspaper, uh, which led to Stobo actually being uh, accused and tried as a spy by the French. So, um, you know, certainly having spies, having an intelligence service is something that's 
not new to the world, that isn't just, didn't come about with the CIA and the KGB. Uh, it's a very old uh, thing within armies to make sure that you had scouts and spies. An amazing achievement in a world without telecommunications, internet, or yes. electricity as we know it. Uh, whenever we look at uh, the aftermath of Grant's defeat, of course, the most tangible aftermath for Pittsburghers is Grant Street, named after the general. Uh, we see a pretty gruesome spectacle. Could you describe the scene? Yes, um, you know, and it's hard to imagine from our modern Western eyes what it was like for natives to fight wars. They had their own practices, they had their own ways of dealing with captives in war, and um, one of these uh, involved often the, the torture to the death of, of captives, war captives. Um, on the aftermath of Grant's defeat, um, there was the, the burning of um, some of these Highlanders. Uh, there was also, uh, you know, afterwards some of them were decapitated and their heads left on stakes and poles outside of Fort Duquesne. So, um, yeah, it was, it was quite a gruesome sight. Indian politics, by their nature, are very physical politics. The scene you just described being part of it. Could you talk about the role of violence uh, in the Indian way of war? Well, um, again, it's, it's very different than the Western concepts of war. Um, at its very core, um, natives often weren't fighting to see the entire uh, decimation of their enemies. They often fought uh, in a sense of pride. Um, and so you could make a raid on a remote enemy village and if you took a single captive or you managed to knock a few people on the head, you saw that as a tremendous victory where from a European point of view that would be a minor skirmish rather than a, than a victory in war. Uh, and again, the, the way that they dealt with uh, captives taken in war was also very different from the European perspective. Some captives taken in warfare were actually adopted and assimilated into native cultures. Um, the use of these kind of ritualized deaths is something that, um, again, is different than a European point of view, but it was an opportunity uh, for your people to kind of take out some of their anger and frustration at the enemy. Uh, and it also gave the enemy an opportunity to show how brave they were. So uh, again, a, a Frenchman serving at Fort Duquesne described a, a native uh, who was put to death that way in this ritualized torture. Uh, who, you know, basically said, bring it on. I mean, he was being roasted alive and yet kind of taunted the people who were killing him to, to bring more. Um, and he kind of was able to show his bravery and the strength of his nation through the way that he died in that torturous death. So it's just a, say, it's very remote from the way we think of warfare being practiced. But the natives had been, you know, had their own policies and their own procedures and their own ceremonies that stretch back thousands of years. So the fact that the Europeans were now, that, were now part of that equation, it didn't mean the natives were going to change their practices. We have a very, still to this day, familiar sense of the Western way of war. You have war, you have peace, you have a treaty, you have a defeat. Uh, Indian war is very different, and the Indian warrior is very different. Alan, can you talk about the physicality of the Indian warrior, everything from tattoos to methodology of fighting? Sure. Um, again, native societies um, out here uh, were kind of warrior societies in many ways. Um, you mentioned tattooing. One of the ways that warriors uh, express themselves uh, in many cases were with war exploit tattoos so that 
visually at just seeing you, I might see scalp poles or markings on you that instantly told me how many men you had killed in battle. Um, you know, things like that that are, again, something that, that maybe in the, the 20th century you start to see more uh, in the Western world, but something very different than the way Europeans would have marked honor. Um, and just the way that the war was fought. Again, they didn't see these kind of uh, overwhelming defeat where you actually, you know, uh, wiped out an enemy the way the European warfare often took place. It was often more uh, small group engagements and just a whole different mindset behind it. We've talked about battles like Braddock's defeat, 1755, Grant's defeat, 1758. The common strand amongst all of them is that the native warriors tend to bear most of the fighting. Uh, and they fought very differently than Europeans. The British never adapted well. Why were the British so incapable of adapting to that? And what did the natives do that was so effective? Well, I think some of it is just that the European mindset, again, they had developed their tactics for warfare in Europe. Uh, they had developed the tactics along with the development of their weapons. And so by the time firearms are introduced, uh, the idea in European warfare is kind of linear tactics where you have uh, multiple lines of men firing weapons at each other. The only way to kind of control that fire and even to physically control the men on the battlefield was to, to use that kind of engagement. Uh, I think for the most part, native warfare techniques develop more out of hunting techniques, uh, where you, you know, kind of sneak up on animals, uh, where you kind of in essence ambush them. And so the, the way that natives developed their warfare was just very different. They routinely made use of things like cover and concealment uh, of surprise. And the way that the European armies with thousands of men and all these baggage trains and all of these troops, it just wasn't a very practical way to, to fight. And so when you put those kind of European tactics and dump them into the woods of North America with people who are used to fighting gun from concealment and kind of these faster, lighter actions, um, you know, it can have bad results sometimes. And especially if you're too rigid to, to make that kind of flexible adaptation. I think by the time you reach the Battle of Bushy Run in 1763 in Western Pennsylvania, Henry Bouquet, who's part of that very ancient European tradition of warfare, starts to use native tactics, starts to use feints, and uh, starts to use kind of ambush tactics and things. So slowly, they, they, some of the English in particular figured that out. I think the French, because they had these combined forces of real French uh, military, if you will, like the forces of the Marine, uh, but they also were using kind of uh, French militiamen who had grown up with Indians, who understood Indian hunting techniques, and who understood native uh, kind of battle tactics better, that I think they adapted a little bit better uh, in the woods than the English typically did. Historians have a, a point of debate, and what this is is really a, a conversation amongst historians. Do you believe that on the frontier, native culture and European culture fused to create something else, or was there always that very clear line between the two worlds? I kind of personally believe there's a clear line, but there is so much cross-cultural adaptation that sometimes those lines do get blurred, uh, particularly in, in this area, in the Ohio country, uh, even the line between who is and isn't a native, so that you have famous people like the Gertie family who were former Indian captives who flipped back and forth over the years between living a native lifestyle and living a European lifestyle. Uh, so the lines get blurred, but I think 
overall, I, I can still view it as, as being uh, distinct things. And right on through the beginning of the revolution, you have uh, riflemen uh, you know, fighting in the East who, again, grew up used to those native battle tactics and have adapted more of that to their own style of fighting. Uh, but I don't think you lose the fact that they're still white men. They're, they're really not Indians. Whenever we talk about battles, especially this time period, uh, we give them names that sometimes allow us to, I think, overlook much of, of the important detail. Braddock's defeat as the commanding officer. We discount all of the men involved. Grant's defeat. Uh, who were the major Indian leaders on the battlefield, and, and how did you become a leader since there was no general rank or, or uh, uh, sort of ladder to climb socially, we could say? Right. Um, and that's one of the issues. Uh, you know, as they say, the most of what's been written about any of these conflicts were written by Europeans. Um, they're often not as familiar with who exactly was firing at them in the woods. Um, various leaders developed uh, out here, especially in the Ohio country. Gayasuda, a Seneca leader, was one of these. Uh, native communities, um, you kind of had hereditary war chiefs, but you also had uh, people who kind of became war leaders. So it's a it's just as complex as a, a hierarchy as the European armies, but it's a little more fluid at the same time. Um, so you had a lot of uh, tremendous leadership on the native side, uh, but a lot of it was led by people whose names, for the most part, we, we probably will never know. So we'll fast forward now further into 1758. John Forbes has built a road, really the first road, that crosses the Appalachian Mountains in Pennsylvania, the Great Divide. Uh, of the English world at the time. He's built a series of forts, Loudoun, Bedford, Ligonier. Uh, they're bearing down on the French position. This seems like the breeding ground for a major battle. We get nothing like that. What happens? Well, um, let's say that we have that initial uh, foray by, uh, by Grant's people uh, and then meet that defeat uh, in September. Um, Forbes's people continue on and by that fall, they actually are poised to, to take the point. Uh, again, this has been well known by the French, uh, although they had been expanding uh, Fort Duquesne, they were well aware that Forbes's forces were on their doorstep. And they also knew that they couldn't actually stand and fight. I mean, they were outnumbered tremendously by the, by the British forces. And so a decision was made essentially to abandon the point. And so from that point on, uh, for the next few weeks, the, uh, the French made quite an effort to destroy as much of what existed of Fort Duquesne as they could. Uh, they cut off many of the palisades, uh, the, the pickets, uh, ground level, so they couldn't be reused. Um, and really on the eve of, of uh, Forbes's army land, or, uh, essentially marching to the point itself, um, they attempted to burn and blow up as much of Fort Duquesne as they possibly could have. So instead of uh, a grand battle to retake the point from the French, uh, the English essentially took the point back the same way the French had taken Trent's fort, uh, with basically without a shot fired. Did the French ever believe they would return to this position before, or were they signaling the beginning of the end of the entire war? Uh, I think there's always the anticipation that they would come back, and I think to some degree the English, depending on who, who you're reading, kind of either anticipated or did not anticipate them ever coming back. So it reached a point where um, after Forbes' uh, forces had retaken the point, basically all of them but a couple hundred men turned right around and headed back east again. They hadn't enough supplies to really winter here at the point. 
Uh, so they left a man named Mercer in charge, Hugh Mercer, uh, with basically some instruction to, to build a small fort uh, to house enough men to uh, essentially build a much larger, larger fortification, which would eventually be, become Fort Pitt. There is a question worthy of further exploration with the French abandonment of the Forks of the Ohio. In 1755, Edward Braddock is pushed away largely by their native allies. In 1758, James Grant, largely a victory for the French allied natives. Where do they go when Forbes' campaign approaches? So the Indians kind of got the short end of that, obviously, with their, their allies, the French, uh, literally pulling up stakes and moving from the area. Uh, their source of supply for some of the, the necessities of carrying on a war on the frontier then are going with them. Uh, so some of the natives uh, that were part of kind of the, the French contingent that came down, I think actually went back with the French as they headed back north. Uh, the more local uh, Indians who had supported the French efforts, the Delaware and Shawnee, I think for the most part, went back to their villages. Uh, but I'm sure there was a tremendous amount of apprehension when you see your, your ally and the fortification that's supported you for the last few years uh, put to the torch by the French themselves. The British have captured the Ohio country. It's one of many objectives of the Seven Years' War, but it's an objective nevertheless. How does the Ohio country change with the collapse of the French presence in the region? I think it certainly um, it changes the complexity of the war. Uh, you start to see that tide turning towards the English uh, from that point on, and really the English coming back in and reoccupying the, the point also forces, again, mostly the Shawnee, the Delaware, and the Mingo people to kind of reevaluate their position with the French uh, because now the closest trading partners are back to being the English again. Do you think the English were receptive to trade with the, with the Indian peoples at that time? Yeah, I think there's a, a, as Fort Pitt is being built uh, and it becomes more and more of a, an economic uh, frontier post as well as a military one. So certainly uh, over the course of the rest of the war, there is somewhat of a relationship, a trade relationship reestablished with the Ohio country Indians with English traders. We've had since 1754 all the way to 1758, French domination of the forks of the Ohio, really of the entire region. Is there a lasting legacy today of that domination, uh, and how does it manifest itself? Well, uh, you know, I think locally, for the most part, people have forgotten uh, that this was New France at one time. Uh, obviously, the name of Duquesne is preserved in a, in a local university, um, and I do think it's kind of sad that in some ways that Duquesne has been kind of forgotten about for the most part. We often refer to it kind of here, even in Point State Park, as kind of an orphan with uh, a tracery and a small monument in the yard in the center of it, uh, whereas Fort Pitt gets an entire museum named after it. So uh, I think Duquesne is certainly uh, a part of Pittsburgh history that uh, needs a little more attention showered on it. That concludes this episode of Battlefield Pennsylvania. Thank you to Alan Gutches for participating. For more information on visiting the Fort Pitt Museum and Point State Park, please visit their website. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, or would like to recommend future episodes of Battlefield Pennsylvania, please visit our website at pcntv.com. Thank you for joining us.